1: Okay. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to New Books and Sports, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Paul Nepper, and today I'm excited to welcome Don Stradley to the show. He's here to talk about his book, The War, Hagler, Hearns, and Three Rounds for the Ages. Don, welcome to the show. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Uh, I wonder if you could start off by telling our listeners a little bit about yourself.
0: Uh, Well, I've been writing for uh, The Ring magazine for quite a few years, and also uh, uh, most of the boxing magazines I've been in, uh, including some of the British magazines, um, and also a digital magazine called Ringside Seat, which uh, you should all check out if you like uh, good writing and whatnot, good, good photographs. Uh, ringside seat is has been around for a couple of years and we're still building a little audience uh, I think it's good um and when I'm not writing about boxing uh I write about movies I work for a couple of movie streaming platforms uh fandor and the film detective um if uh you like movies, um, Fandor is the place to go. We're, we're sort of a junior Netflix type of thing. Um, and I have a bunch of books out that you can find on Amazon. I've written a book about Edwin Valero, a book about Carlos Monzone, and my new one about Hagler and Hearns.
1: So let's jump into that. As you document so well in the book, um, Hagler Hearns is, is considered by many to be the greatest fight of all time um some people will qualify and say the greatest short fight of all time or but whatever however you want to call it it's it's always it's always in that discussion for the greatest fights of all time what made it such a great fight
0: well uh, a few factors the main one being that there was so much publicity around it that everyone's eyes were on it you know it was a big big event and it lived up to the publicity. How many fights really live up to the publicity? Not many. And, and this fight received more publicity than most. Um, so I think that that was something that really uh, affected people uh, in, in 1985. This huge amount of publicity, and then it turned out to be a great fight. Uh, so it was as if it, it elevated boxing a little bit, you know, because boxing at the time. Was struggling. Um, a lot of the older fighters were, were either going into retirement or they just didn't look as good as they had a couple of years earlier. They were Larry Holmes and Jerry Cooney, um, Ray Mancini, the big names were starting to, uh, fray a little bit and Hagler and Hearns, they were not as big as those other fighters, but they were really the last two guys available. So Bob Arum decided we'll put them together and he had tried in the past and it didn't work out. Um, he said, we'll put them together and we will hype this fight. And it was an unbelievable amount of publicity that went into it. Modern fans couldn't even imagine it. Um, uh, because now you can just have a press conference. You, you can, you know, have it on social media. You, you, you can, uh, reach a lot of people pretty easily now, um, just in one afternoon. Uh, But back then, Aram put both fighters on private jets and had them flying around the country, going from one city to another. He did this for weeks. So every morning you'd pick up your newspaper and you'd read about the fight. You know, where were they today? They're they're in Texas or or they're in Los Angeles. And and they would argue with each other and and call each other names. And some of it was silly, uh, but some of it got heated. Um, And just because there was so much hype that really attracted people to it, and then it was such an explosive fight that uh, you know it, it got into the public's mind. People talked about it for for months and months and months. Um, we're still talking about it all these years later. You know, I mean, Tyson Fury and and uh, Wilder just had their 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 great fight a few nights ago or, or last week. Are we still going to be talking about that fight forty years from now? I don't know. It, it's, it's, it's a strange thing to think about, uh, but yeah, yeah Hagler-Hurons. people still talk about it. I, uh,
1: as I, as I said, before we came on, you know, before we started recording, I, I was pretty young then. Um, but I, one thing that really surprised me in reading the book was, you know, we, uh, from what I do remember as a kid and looking back and, and I think now we look back on that age in boxing and particularly around that weight class, and we look at it as kind of a glory days, you know, with Hearns and Hagler and, and Duran and Leonard. And, and um, so I was very surprised to read that uh, there was a lot of concern as to whether the Hagler-Hearns would sell. And that is, as, as you mentioned, they, they had kind of tried to put it together once. Um, Hagler in particular, because, you know, from what I know, you know, many people consider him one of the great middleweights of all time. I was very surprised that he, in and of himself, was not a draw. Um, He kind of needed that other big personality or big name to go with him. Um, Why? Why do you think? Why was Hagler not a bigger draw in and of himself?
0: Well, Hagler had a few things uh, working against him. One was that he he when he was young, he came up at a time where. The only attention being paid was to Muhammad Ali. Everyone else in boxing was in the back seat. You know, that was just how it was. Uh, then Ray Leonard stepped into that spotlight, and everyone had to take a back seat to Ray Leonard. And that's how boxing has always been historically. You have one figurehead, and everyone else is just trying to get a little piece of the spotlight. Um whether it was Jack Dempsey or, or Joe Lewis or, or, or Ray Robinson or whoever, there was always one main attraction. Everyone else was in the back seat. That's just how it has been. Mm-hmm. Um, so Hagler had that. The other problem was he was from Massachusetts, and boxing was dying in Massachusetts. It had once big, it had been pretty big in Boston way before Hagler. Um, but once Hagler turned pro boxing in this area, it was not that big. Um, so he had problems getting attention even on a local level. And I point out in the book, it's hard to imagine, uh, promoters would try to put Hagler in the Boston garden. He'd have trouble selling 5,000 seats and seats were only $10. <laughs> okay. Um, uh, so those are the two main issues, just the timing and his location. Uh, and a third issue was his, his personality just did not get over. Uh, he, he didn't know how to project himself um, from the people I have spoken to. Uh, Cause I knew his trainers pretty well. Uh, I never got to know Marvin. Um, but I knew his brother a little bit, Robbie, and I knew his trainers a little bit and, um, from what I've heard, he was a very nice guy, um, but he couldn't project that. He didn't know how to project that. If there were too many people around, he, he would get a little bit cranky. Uh, he liked his privacy. Um, so he just didn't really know how to play that game. He eventually got better at it, you know, but when he was young and coming up at the time when you're supposed to be grabbing all of that attention, he just didn't know how to do it. It did not come naturally to him. Um, not all boxers have that uh, gift of gab, you know. They don't all have that natural charisma. Um, so he was sort of a cult figure. What he was, the real hardcore boxing fans knew about him and appreciated him, but the mainstream just yeah, they they were not that impressed with him. It took him a long time to uh, cross over and, and and get the attention. In fact, he was. At one point, he was the highest paid athlete in the world and and was still not very popular. You know, it was because Bob Arum was was uh, gambling on him and giving him a lot of money to keep him under the top rank promotional umbrella. So he was just paying Hagler a lot of money. But Hagler was really not that popular yet. So he, he was rich before he was famous.
1: Right. And how did How did Hearns' personality compare to Hagler?
0: Well, one thing that I turned up in the book that uh, I, I sort of knew but uh, learned more about it was that a lot of the coverage Hearns got early on was that he was this sort of eccentric character, kind of a, a, a offbeat kind of guy, who you know, um, collecting rare guy,
1: animals. The kind of guy who was a pet cougar who attacks him, right?
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He, he had rare animals. They would attack him occasionally. He, uh, he wanted to be, uh, a, a, a cop in Detroit. Uh, he, he had all of these, uh, you know, not, not hobbies, but he had a lot of quirks and a lot of the press they would write about him as if he was this kind of, um, you know, he liked hanging out with Michael Jackson. And I think Hearn's when Hearns was hanging out with Michael Jackson, he thought this is how a famous person is supposed to act because Michael Jackson had the weird pets. He kind (laughs) of isolated himself. Um, Hearns started wearing his hair like Michael Jackson for a while, though a a lot of guys did at that point. It wasn't just Tommy. Um, You know, so I, I, I always wondered if Tommy kind of thought this is how I have to behave now that I'm famous, you know, and he, you know, he, he did what a lot of guys do when they, when they make a couple million bucks. You know, he turned his house into this kind of playground where he had his own DJ set up, you know, and, and, and uh, um, it was very extravagant. Um, but in the end, if you, if you see Tommy now, he, he's a very basic kind of guy. He's not flashy at all. Uh, but I think when he was young, he thought, that's what I have to do. But he was an interesting character uh, and, and the press never quite got on the Tommy Hearns bandwagon. Uh, all of those guys have been mythologized since then as these almost heroic characters, you know. But looking back, you know, Hagler was just sort of a sourpuss and Hearns was a guy who, you know, uh, just this weird character who, who lost his most significant fights Right. No one, no one considered them kings as, as they do now. You know, right. um, it, it, uh, it was, uh, the reality is a lot different than the myth
1: that has grown up since then. So you talked a little about Aram and clearly he was a central figure in this fight. Um, how did he, how did he, was it just that tour that he did, you know, where he, he, he had them fly around. How did he, take two fighters that, as you said, weren't, you know, huge names, weren't incredibly famous. And how did he generate the kind of hype that, that you mentioned for this fight?
0: Well, he had been building Hagler slowly, um, not with great success. It was really a gamble, um, fight after fight, he would just come back and say, I don't know what to do. You know, he, he, he thought that Hagler Duran, he thought that was going to be a big deal, but it didn't sell the way he had hoped, you know. Um, but he just, he just really floored it with this fight. You know, it was press, press, press. He, he, I don't think a, a promoter has done that since then. Maybe Don King did it, but, you know, Don King would take guys that we'd never heard of and he'd really try to build them up. Um, but uh, Aram, it was really just a calculated risk. And he, he, he pushed Hagler as this kind of blue collar kind of character. And he pushed Hearns as this dynamic fighter. Um, it was, uh, you know, and to their credit, they played along with it, Hagler and Hearns. They went along on this publicity tour and they hated it. They got sick of it. Um, but, you know, they, they, they did as much as you could ask of two fighters to uh, promote the fight. Um, and at the time, I think the press was kind of hungry for a fight because there hadn't been anything like this in a little while, you know, Hearns had fought Leonard a few years earlier. Uh, Larry Holmes had had a couple of big fights. Um, you know, there had been the Alexis Arguello, uh, Aaron Pryor, couple of fights, but there, it had been a little while. And the timing was perfect, you know, because there was sort of a dead spot in boxing mm-hmm. that year. Um, and, you know, and it's funny, Mike Knight, I think Mike Tyson made his debut uh, like two weeks before the fight, you know, just quietly uh, in upstate New York. He, he had a, a, a four rounder. Um, so there were just there were no big names, no big fights right. in the horizon. And this was it. It was kind so, of a,
1: it was kind of this little dead spot between ollie and tyson in a way uh
0: yeah and leonard between you know right leonard
1: Leonard, right sure yeah
0: yeah it was uh it was just the timing of it It was perfect he he put all his chips on haggler um and uh
1: and it paid off one one of the things i found really interesting about the hype and the 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 fight and the build-up to the fight was just the whole the whole idea of closed-circuit television um as i said i was young then it was i, I didn't really start watching fights so a few years later and when i did at that point hbo was pretty entrenched as the the host of the big fights um but but you know but they went a, another way with this fight with the closed circuit television um i wonder if you could talk a little bit about that how the closed circuit television worked and and what a big part of of this fight that was
0: Yeah. Um, for, for younger boxing fans today, I mean, you can watch a fight on your phone, you know, you can, uh, you know, you, you, you don't have to move an inch and, and you can, you can watch a fight. Um, but back then, uh, you might have to drive 10 miles to, um, to get to a theater that would be showing the fight. Uh, closed circuit television was, uh, a kind of a phenomenon, Uh, that was in and out of uh, the public's mind throughout the the 50s and and 60s. In the 70s, it was pretty much uh, Ali's fights were shown on closed circuit. Um, uh, Some fights were televised. You could just see them at home. But the really big ones, you wanted to get people to pay money all over the country Uh, So you'd set up your theaters in in all the major cities. You know, Uh, if a fighter had a big following in New York, you'd try to get as many theaters as possible in New York that would uh, show the fight. And then there were little fiefdoms in each area. There was, you know, one guy who booked all the theaters in uh, New England. Another guy booked all the theaters on the West Coast. You know, it was a business, you know. Um, But by the time of Hagler Hearns, it was starting to dip, and pay per view, uh, where, where you could just watch at home. That was starting to come up, but nobody had real faith in it, um, because you could invite ten people to your house, right? And that was cutting down on the number of tickets you could right. sell. You know, uh, you'd rather have ten people go to a theater and they all have to buy an individual ticket. You right. Know? Um, and so at the time, there was uh, sort of a, a little battle over whether Aram would go with pay-per-view, which was the new thing, or closed-circuit television in the theaters, which was getting old. And, and I remember it was still uh, a crapshoot. I remember going to theaters just hoping the connection would work, you, you know, because they would have a, a gigantic screen in the middle of the arena, I would go to the Boston garden or sometimes a theater would have it. And sometimes the image would be blurry, you know, or you wouldn't get the image at all. You would just get sound Um, or you'd get no sound and a blurry image, you know, and you'd be sitting there kind of gritting your teeth thinking, oh man, I just paid 20 bucks for a ticket and and i'm not going to be able to see it you know right. and there, there were stories of you know riots breaking out in theaters when when uh you know the images weren't good or or cut you know sometimes the signal would die you know right. and, and, uh the technology was so weird that you know they had to have you know their own their own private uh almost like mechanics on hand you know to to try to fix the projectors that were going to be you know, showing this movie, um, of the fight. Uh, it was a weird time. New fans, uh, have no idea what, what it was about, you know? So that was kind of why I was trying to get that in the book to just to show them that it was a very different time. And it was only 36 years ago. Um, but drastically different. You know, I remember if a big fight was made and they said it was going to be on pay-per-view you'd be checking the newspapers every day hoping that it would come to your neighborhood because even though you had cable mm-hmm. the pay-per-view provider may not be carrying the fight so right. you had to go to somebody have right. to go to somebody's house you know right. a few towns over
1: I remember that yeah
0: yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it was a confusing time really um, But uh, I I was fascinated by it, and I'm glad you uh, appreciated that chapter. I I wanted to just show what it was like in
1: 1985. You know, Um, absolutely. I I really appreciated that because you really set the setting. You really showed what was going on at that time. Another example of that I thought was your description of of Las Vegas in 1985, which was, of course, vastly different from the Vegas of today. Um, Could you, which of course Vegas ended up being the site of the fight? Could you talk a little about about what Vegas was like in, at that point?
0: Well you know uh, kind of like <laughs> boxing, Vegas was at a midpoint and, and sort of a slump. Um, it was in, it was in between uh, the mob years and the Disney years <laughs> you know um, uh, you know Al, Al Bernstein, I talked to Al Bernstein for the book. And, uh, you know, he was saying you could still sense a little bit of the mob in there, a little bit of that old Frank Sinatra style that was sort of still in the air, but you could tell it was fading, you know, but it didn't look like anything was going to pick up the slack. You know, there was still there there was, you know, you might see, uh, you know, Siegfried and Roy, um, but you also probably see uh, mud wrestling or, um, (laughs) you know, a lot of a lot of cheapo kind of stuff, you know, it right. didn't, become, didn't become the massive touristy attraction that it became, you know, about 10 or 15 years later, it was in a slump. Um, uh, people argue uh, it was going to get out of the slump anyway. Other people say boxing was what brought it out of the slump. Um, they certainly appreciated boxing. In fact, they started to, uh, they made boxing part of The package. Uh, If you were booking a room or if you were booking a vacation uh, in in Las Vegas, uh, while you were booking it, they would tell you, you know, there's a big fight Monday night. Why don't you stay, you know, through Monday? And they would try to get visitors to stay a little bit longer, you know. Uh, They would book for the weekend and, well, no, there's a fight Monday. You might want to see that, you know. Um, They were using boxing to to entice people to stay a little longer, maybe gamble a little bit. You know, Um, it was uh, a a good relationship. Some people dreaded it because they thought once boxing gets in Las Vegas permanently, um, what's that going to do? You know, it's such a big gambling presence. Right. uh, You know. How is that going to affect the sport? You know, and there were a lot of people who didn't want boxing to, to become so firmly rooted in uh, Las Vegas. Um, You know, in 1985, there was a big, uh, you know, what do you call it? Uh, A big movement to just ban boxing altogether. Uh, The American medical association was, (laughs) was trying to stamp out boxing. Um, And I, I don't think they came close, but they made a lot of noise. Um, so <laughs> that it was a, a, an interesting time in boxing. Um and uh I don't think anyone anyone born, you know, since then who missed out on that era, I, I don't think they can really appreciate uh what the sport
1: was going through at that time. Right. All right, let's get to the fight. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, uh, one thing that was fascinating to me was, you know, the, the night of the fight, um, as you detail in the book, Hearns is in his dressing room and, and his legs are shot. He's got nothing in his legs. And I read that and my heart kind of broke for him because I, I just, I, I was like, wow, this is this math. This is the fight of his life in which he has been, you know, obviously training for and working for, for forever. And 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 here he is, and he's about to go out there and his legs are, are tired. Was that was that overtraining? Was that anxiety? Was that something else? And and also did that affect the way he fought when he got the rig?
0: Yeah, uh, it was all of the above. Um, I, I think overtraining did play a part of it uh there are stories that he was doing extra running at night which was ridiculous um like i said it was the fight of his life and and he thought he had to put in more miles you know uh and even running on the beach when he was uh, he was in Miami before he got to Las Vegas and he was running on a beach which is no good um, and uh, he later said he was doing like eight miles a day at one point. Uh, he, he said he was sneaking out to do extra running. Um, so he had definitely overtrained. That was part of it. I think anxiety may have played into it, especially when he started thinking, wow, my legs are tired. <laughs> um, I think uh, the anxiety may have kicked in then, um, which made it even worse and apparently as he was making his way to the ring about uh, 10 minutes before the fight he said i just have to go out and try for the knockout um he had wanted to box uh although he kept saying i'm going to knock him out his plan was to box a while um and then start throwing bigger punches later uh but maybe 10, 15 minutes before the fight. I don't know if he said anything to Emmanuel Stewart, his trainer, or if he just said it in his own mind. Right. Uh, but he just decided I got to go for the knockout. I can't, uh, I can't stick and move for six rounds. You know, I, I just got to try to take him out. And when you had his punch, he, he had just knocked Duran out. Um, though Duran was an over the hill lightweight, not, you know, a middleweight. Um, he had just uh, knocked out Duran. He probably thought I, I can, I can get something done in the first round. I, I don't have to, uh, you know, box a lot with this guy.
1: Um, but, uh, unfortunately, you know, Hagler,
0: <laughs> Hagler was not giving him a chance.
1: No, I mean that, that was, you know, anyone who's seen that fight knows, I mean, the bell rang and Hagler just charged him like a bull and, uh, and it was just free swinging from the start. And Hagler, really, the whole fight, he just kept charging and charging and charging. Why did, why did Hagler uh, take that approach? And, and how, how do you think that affected the fight, is his, his strategy of just, just coming full speed ahead?
0: Well, uh, I, in the book, I, I did interview uh, one of the uh, Petronelli family who was you know, in the camp at the time. And he said that was all by design. You know, the the idea was to keep coming forward to keep Hearns moving back. Because the feeling was that Hearns was only effective if he was planted, if his feet were flat and he could get some leverage on the right hand. If you kept him moving backwards, he didn't have a third of the power, you know. Uh, So that was really how that strategy was created. Just keep Tommy moving backwards. Keep coming forward. Keep throwing. Don't give him a chance to set up. Um, and it sounds almost suicidal because you're you're gambling that you're going to walk right into his his right hand. Right. Um, but if he's moving back, he doesn't have the leverage. And the other thing, and I and I mentioned this in the book, was that they had no concern about Hearns. Uh, I remember talking to Goody Petronelli, who was the chief trainer, and I said, were you concerned at all about Hearns, you know, that big right hand, you know, and, and he just laughed. He said, nah, he said to us, he was a welterweight. That's all he was, just a welterweight. And we, 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 they thought Hagler would beat him in one round. They were, really? they were, they were that confident. Um, <laughs> which which shows you how much confidence they had in Hagler. You know, they just thought, you know, Goody was funny. And I mentioned this in the book. He said, look, I know there was a lot of publicity and a lot of people love that fight, but we, we thought we'd beat him in one round. He was an old <laughs> welterweight. That's all he was.
1: I mean, that first round was just, I mean, obviously the three rounds was incredible. But the first round in particular uh, was just, I mean, it it just, as you know, in the book, it left people just speechless. Um, How close did that that fight come close to ending in the first round? Were were either of those fighters, would you say, were either of those fighters very close to a knockout in the first round? You
0: know, I I don't think so. Uh, I I think they were both on on adrenaline. You know, the adrenaline was so high um, that uh, I, I don't think they were really in danger in that first round. Uh I, I think uh they took each other's best shots. Um and Hagler went back to his corner and and and, and apparently he looked at one of his trainers and said, This fight's over. You know, I I, yeah, I took his said best, that, yeah. Yeah, I took his best shot. This fight's over. You know, I think I think Hearns went back to his corner uh a little worse, <laughs> a little worse off because his his legs were not getting any better. Um, and, and his hand was, uh, already injured, you know? Right. So, uh, I don't think they were on the verge of going down, but, um, they, they, uh, they had felt what the other guy
1: was going to bring. Right. Um, and then of course, later in the fight, Hagler developed that bad cut on his forehead and, uh, Richard Steele took a look at him do you think that was clo- was was he close to calling that fight was that i mean was that really in jeopardy
0: um i don't think so because the doctor didn't seem too uh, upset about the cut you know the doctor was uh you know um i don't want to say the doctor was blasé but but the doctor wasn't that concerned about the cut cuz the, the cut was really in the middle of the forehead right. um You know, it it was not you know a a a real dangerous kind of cut. Um, It it occasionally it it looked bad, Um, but uh, it 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 was not the kind of horrifying cut that would cause a fight to be stopped. Um, I think Richard Steele was so uh, caught up in the action uh, that he may have overreacted a little bit. You know, Um, but again, the mythology a mythology grows up around the fight, you know, that, Oh, you know, they were going to stop it. And Hagler, you know, Hagler feared they were going to stop the fight. You know, um, I, I, uh, I I think that's a bit of a myth, a bit blown out of proportion. Um, but, uh, it was, you know, a a good sized cut, but not, not the kind of cut that would cause a fight to be stopped.
1: Was so ultimately, of course, um, Hagler knocked turns out in, in the third round. What, what, what ultimately was, was the difference in that fight? Why do you think Hagler came out victorious in the end?
0: Well, it was, part of it was his strategy was successful. was coming forward nonstop. And, and the other thing was just, you yeah. know, Hearns' legs were not going to, you know, those legs were not going to hold up for, you know, and get him into the late rounds, you know, hoping Hagler would get tired um, that, that wasn't going to happen. Um, and I think uh, Hearns may have overestimated his punch. Um, I think after the Duran fight, where he had knocked Duran senseless, he thought, you know, he, he thought he was Superman and, you know, could just keep throwing that right hand and get himself out of trouble. I think he overestimated his power uh, for this fight. Um, and you know, when you're when you're a young guy and you've got that right hand, you know, I probably be the same way. You know, I'd think I'll just knock him out. You know, um, there were some arguments, and uh, I put this in the book. Uh, at one point, some people thought Tommy had taken the fight a little bit lightly; that he had spent too much time having fun uh, in Las Vegas. Uh, Cause he apparently he was staying up late and gambling and walking around and, you know, just walking around with his entourage. Um, but, uh, you know, there's also a line of thinking that that's how he stayed loose, you know, rather th- rather than sit in his room, worrying about the fight, he would just go out in public and, you know, try to have some fun. Um, I think Tommy's attitude was a man goes to work eight hours a day at night. He should be able to loosen up. um, and uh, I think it was Lee Montville, um, one of my favorite writers, who who said at that time because he was covering the fight, he said, "Who is to say if if Tommy, you know, stayed in every night, if the fight would have been any different, you know?" Right. right. Um, and I think also there are there's a saying that old fighters used to have. Uh, I think it was Jim Corbett, the old the old time boxer who beat John L. Sullivan in 1892, Corbett said, and I think this is very true. He said, uh, there are nights when a fighter is better than he has ever been and better than he ever will be. And I think Hagler had that night. Um, Hagler was not going to lose that night. Um, he'd never fought that way before. If you watch his earlier fights, he was more of a stand-up fighter. You know, mm-hmm. he was a stand-up fighter. He was a counter puncher. Uh, he, he was um, kind of light on his feet. Uh, then that night he comes out trying to be Joe Frazier, he, you know, coming forward, mowing uh, right. the guy down, um, relentless. He never fought that way in the past. And he never did again. He did His fights after that, he didn't fight that way. You know, um, he just had it. He had it that night. That was
1: Hagler's night. When that fight ended, did, were, p- people who are watching, whether it be boxing writers, sports writers, even fans, either in attendance on on closed circuit. What were, were, did people stop and say, wow, that's the best fight I've ever seen. Wow. That that's an all time great fight. Or is that is, did that narrative? Is that something that kind of built up over the years?
0: Oh, well, it, it was what they call an instant classic um, and not, not only among boxing fans, but among people who, you know, weren't even associated with boxing. You know, you'd, you'd be watching a hockey game and a fight would break out and the commentators would say, hey, we've got Hagler Hearns on ice. You know, um, it, it, it became part of the uh, national dialogue for, for quite a few months. Uh, it was uh, a big deal because there had been so much publicity. uh, A lot of people knew about it, you know, and I I don't think modern fights have that ability as, as much as we all love uh, the Tyson Fury, Deontay Wilder fight, you know, was, was Jimmy Kimmel talking about it on his show a a few nights later? You know what I mean? Yeah. Whereas all of the talk shows, David Letterman, Johnny Carson, you know, um, they were all talking about the fight, Hagler-Hearns. Uh, they made it part of their, their monologues, you know. Um, it became uh, an instant an instant classic, and there were debates uh, in the paper um, in the days after the fight. You know, the, the, the crusty old sports writers were coming out, and right. they were saying... You know, they would say, I've been watching boxing since Joe Lewis, and this was better than anything I've seen. You know, right. um, so it, uh, that part of the myth, it, it's real. <laughs> it's not something that grew after the fact. Um, people love that fight immediately. And, and of course, there were some people who squawked, saying, well, it was only three rounds. How right. can we, you know, how can we say it was a great fight? It was only three rounds, you know. Um, you, you always get the naysayers, you know. And just like now, you're getting people who, who there's been a wave of people who didn't like the, the Wilder Fury fight. They're saying, oh, it, it was great, but it wasn't the right kind of great, you right. know. It, it was too sloppy to really be a great fight, you know. Right. Um, so even back then, you, you had some people say, well, Ali Frazier, that was great, You know, know, this was just three rounds, you know, (laughs) um, and another thing that, that, uh, was unfortunate was that there were a lot of, uh, people who begrudged Hearns, uh, making the amount of money that he did for three rounds of work. Um, you, you, you heard a lot of that, uh, People saying, oh, well, I'd go in for three rounds and, and make five million dollars, you know. Yeah. But
1: I mean, he came yeah. to fight. This wasn't this wasn't Michael Spinks. I mean, he would, you know, he right. was throwing bunches. And I mean, right. that's you, a little ridiculous. Yeah. you And, you know,
0: nothing that part of boxing never changes. You always get <laughs> you always get the you know, now they call them haters. You know, back then we just call them assholes. Right. It, you know. <laughs> they always existed and they always will but yeah even for Hagler Hearns there were a few people a a tiny minority a minority of people who would say it isn't so great the first round was good you know but there were a lot of people who would uh, you know old time writers like Red Smith uh, no he had had just died but uh, some of the old time writers who were still working you know uh, Povich um, Shirley Shirley Povich Povich. Yeah, Shirley Povich, who was a, a, an elderly man, but he was still covering sports. Um, you know, he he was saying, you know, comparing it to some of Dempsey's fights, which um, you know were pretty untouchable um, right. as far as as far as excitement and legendary status. You know, he was saying this is right up there. How how can you not say it's not up there? You know, so um, the fight really elevated boxing. It, it got people, you know interested again. And, and uh, I came along at the right time because I, I think it whetted their appetite. So then right. when we, when we started to get, you know, Tyson and we started to get, uh, that next Olympic team, you know, um, the, which I think was, uh, you know, Holyfield and, uh, Pernell Whitaker and, and, and that class, right. Uh, that class of 84, when they started getting bigger fights in, in, you know, 86, 87, uh, I think Hagler Hearns whetted appetites and helped make that class uh, commercially viable, you know. Right. It definitely uh, definitely set the plate,
1: set, set the table. How much of a toll did that fight take on each of the fighters, but, you know, physically and, and psychologically, emotionally?
0: Oh, uh, I think it was worse on Hagler. Really? Right. Yeah, yeah. I think it was worse on Hagler. Uh, Hearns, you know, Hearns felt bad. He went back to Detroit. Uh, you know, he, he got a lot of negative publicity. Um, he felt sort of embarrassed and he, he went into a little bit of seclusion for a while, um, but gradually he resumed his career and he had a great career, a uh, fabulous career. Um, Hagler, it seemed like he had blown out all of his circuits you know um he uh he got everything he wanted now he was a famous champion uh all the eyes of the world were on him that's what he'd always wanted but he was burned out he had left everything in the ring uh with with Hearns um because he came out to fight Mugabe a year later and there were rumors that Hagler had been partying he had started to used drugs he was drinking a lot there were a lot of uh sort of uh underground gossip about Hagler that he wasn't quite as dedicated mm. as he had been you know uh because he got what he wanted he finally, he was finally at the top of the mountain um and he he wanted to retire but Bob Arum said no you can't retire now we now you're going to make more money than ever we fi- we're finally where we wanted to be so he fights Mugabe, who was, let's face it, a tough guy, but a bit inexperienced. And he was a junior middleweight. He'd never fought anyone uh, of Hagler's caliber. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and Hagler really had to work to, to beat Mugabe. Um, and that was kind of surprising for some people. For a lot of people, it just looked like another good victory but he looked a little, uh, extended. He was overextended by Mugabe, you know? Um, and then he really wanted to quit. He wanted to retire. And then Leonard lured him into their fight, you know, and, and against Leonard, you know, Hagler looked kind of flat, you know, he, he, he was good. He, it was a close fight, Uh, regardless of of what you think of the scorecards, it was a close fight. But to me and other people, Hadley looked flat against Leonard. Um, And again, there were the rumors that he was partying a lot. His marriage was in trouble. uh, He didn't have the discipline that he had had just a few years earlier. And he was a young fighter. Uh, he was only, I think, 33 or 34. He, he was not, you know, like Bernard Hopkins or something. You know, right. he, was, he was a young guy, but he would already had close to 70 fights. And I think right. he and his training was always tough. Um, so I think he had burned himself out. Um, you know, I, I talked to uh, Steve Marantz, uh for the book. Uh, Steve's all over the book. And he was a Boston Globe writer. And his opinion is that Hagler was done as soon as the Hearns fight was over. Really? Uh, he really had nothing left. Um, whatever he had left, he gave it to Hearns, um, both in the training and, and in the actual fight. Um, so, yeah, in answer to your question, I think the fight took more out of Hagler uh, than than Hearns. Um, and uh there was always talk of a rematch um but it as and i I give a whole chapter to that in the book too um because i I had actually forgotten about that um i knew there was some talk of a rematch but i didn't know how close it came to being made um but one thing or another kept causing it to collapse um and then finally when when lost lost leonard you know he retired and, and moved on, and, and Hearns was left without his rematch. But uh, um, fame was a difficult thing for Hagler. And
1: and uh, once he got it, he was almost too tired to carry it. Um, let me just say once again, the name of Don's book is The War, Hearns, Hagler, and Three Rounds for the Ages. Um, where, do you, where do you write this fight that, uh, you know, in all time great fights, or at least all time great fights that you've seen.
0: Uh, well, I, I, I think the first round is the best round. Um, that that that's uh, easy. <laughs> you know, that's an easy one. Um, but as far as great fights, uh, you know, there there are a lot of great fights, and they all kind of elbow each other for first place. You know, they they all kind of, you know, you catch me on a certain day, and I'll and I'll say it was one fight you know catch me on another day i'll say it was another fight right um y- you know uh and there there are some fights that i've really liked that are not great fights you know that happens too uh mm. there was something something about them that that uh uh you really loved it you know um it might have just been because the guy you liked it, it, he won or he came from behind and scored a knockdown um like there, there was a fight with uh Barry McGuigan. I don't know if you remember him, no. uh, Barry McGuigan. And, uh, he was an Irish featherweight, uh, who was popular for a little while. And he, he fought this, uh, obscure California kid named Stevie Cruz. Uh, it went 15 rounds back and forth. Um, it was a great fight. Nobody remembers it, but I, I, it was one of my, fa- one of my favorites, you know, right. Um, it, it, it's just, uh, um, Different days, uh, I'll have a different answer for you. But that first round, I, I, I think it is the best round. Um, and what's funny is that, and as I mentioned in the book, over the years, the status of that round kind of goes up and down, um, you know, depending on what year the survey <laughs> is made. Right. You know, um, it, it sometimes it's number one, sometimes it's number three. Sometimes it gets an honorable mention, you know, Um, and I think uh, because there were no knockdowns, people, people tend to see knockdowns and they think, oh, that was a better round because there were more knockdowns, you know. Right. But but to my mind, um, I I wouldn't penalize Hagler and Hearns because they stayed on their feet. You know, Uh, I'll praise them for, for staying on their feet, you know, Um. And also it kind of depends on like what the latest fight is. You know, I remember when, when the Ward Gotti, the first Ward Gotti fight happened, Mm -hmm. uh, everybody loved the ninth round of that fight, you know? Um, So in the year or so after that, whenever someone took a survey of the greatest round of all time, suddenly Ward Gotti was up there, you know, and Hagler Hearns was starting to dip a little bit, you know? Right. and and part of it is just because new fans are going to vote for what happened lately, right? You know, um, and as old fans are dying off, you know, fewer of them remember the old fights. You know, sure. Um, so that that's that's kind of what happens. You know, it's like it's like when when ESPN did the, uh, the hundred greatest athletes of all time, you know, Michael Jordan was number one because he was the most recent one. He was the one, right. he was the one that all the newer fans knew and they were going to vote for him. You know, people who weren't even born right. when, you know, when Ali or, or, or Wayne Gretzky or, were, Babe, Ruth. or, or Babe Ruth or, you know, yeah. other, other, other athletes might've been considered, but you know, they, they were a while ago, and, and the new thing always kind of climbs to the top. Um, but I, th- I think anybody who watches the Hagler-Hearns fight, they're, they're, they'll be impressed. Um, but the thing to do is to try to find the HBO version. Um, be, because there are actually two versions of the fight. The, the closed-circuit telecast, which was shown in theaters, right? but simultaneously, HBO was uh recording it to show on a replay uh you know a week later and hbo's version i think is better uh the camera angles are a little bit better uh you see hearns doing more um the the uh the intensity feels a little different uh there are more close-ups like it's from the waist up the way the camera was so you see Hagler and hearns from the waist up rather than what the closed circuit showed, which was far away. Um, and you're seeing more like full body uh, images. Um, and again, you know, modern fans probably don't know what I'm talking about. But um, yeah, they had two separate uh, versions of the fight. And to my eyes, the HBO version is more intense. You can actually see in Tommy's eyes, uh, this kind of look of concern as uh, you know Hagler is coming towards him you know and you didn't really get that from the uh, closed circuit uh, telecast from and I think I said the closed circuit telecast I think I said this in the book it was just like you know if you were watching it on a big screen it just looked like two giants kind of you know chasing each other right. um, and and it wasn't even boxing it wasn't even boxing it was something beyond boxing, you know. Um, but on, on the HBO version, uh, you really get the, uh, the real taste of, of what was going on. And, and if you remember in the book, some of the people say even that didn't do it justice.
1: Right. Yeah. Yeah. You had to be there. Yeah. Yeah. Cause,
0: Cause when you were there watching it, um, it, it was just like mayhem, you know? And then when you watch the replay on TV, it wasn't quite <laughs> what you remembered. You know, right. And, and I can say that in my own experience, because I've covered a lot of fights um, and there are moments in fights where you're convinced, you know, one of the guys is about to, you know, he's out on his feet. He's about to fall down. Uh, and There's all this drama. Uh, but then when you see it replayed on on Showtime or, or whatever, it just kind of goes by in a second. Right. And, and, it, and it's not uh, as intense as it was when you were there watching it. Uh, there, there is something very different about being in the press section. I was lucky enough to cover a lot of fights um, at Madison Square Garden and in Foxwoods, uh, the Boston Garden. I covered a lot of fights, and there is something about being there. Have, have you seen uh, live boxing? Do, do, do you? No, uh, no. Have, there's something different about being m- nearby, and you're, you're hearing the punches. You're. You're hearing it. You know right. what I mean? That that's weird because it sounds like a baseball bat hitting a pumpkin, you know?
1: That that's, <laughs> right. that's
0: it or, or the body shots, you hear it, you know, um, that thump, 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 thump. You hear that when you're there live um, in the first few rows uh and I, I guess if you're in the back row, you're just watching it on the, the TV screen up above the ring because <laughs> you're so used to watching TV right but if, you're, if you're watching it live and you're seeing the punches connect and and it's kind of it's kind of sick in a way because you, you can see the guy's eyes roll back in their heads, you know um, and and you, you you can see the blood hitting the ring. You know like the the blood kind of falls out of their nose and and splats on the ring you you hear it's a very it's a very different very visceral uh kind of kind of experience so to imagine being at Hagler hearns your eyes can't even catch up with the action you know you're you're trying to catch up you can't do it um and then when you watch it on TV, uh, it, it, it's not what you saw. <laughs> you know. Uh, it, it's a very, uh, I, I don't know the scientific explanation for that. I'm sure there's a word for it of what the cameras do right. to, to physical movement. Um, but uh, I, I know from my own experience, it's not the same. So I can't imagine being in Las Vegas that night i remember yeah. al bernstein i loved what al bernstein said when he he said you know he was at ringside with his earphones on the old the old cans that they used to right. and and he actually he took it he took them off so he could absorb you know all the electricity in the air you know um things like that uh I, I, those little details for me they, they make the book really
1: interesting yeah absolutely um well, Don, thank you so much for coming on. It was, it was, I, as I said, I, I, I thought the book was great and uh, appreciate you coming on to talk about it. I have one final question for you. I'd like to ask all my guests. What is your all time favorite sports book?
0: My all time favorite sports book. Um, other, other than, uh, my new one, the war. Um, uh, yes, <laughs> your books, um, your book's not included. My book's not included. <laughs> um, well, let me, let me take a quick look. Uh, actually, this, this one is, uh, I'm going to hold it up. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't know if you're familiar with this one. It's a biography of Jack Dempsey. Okay. Uh, by Roger Kahn. Roger Kahn was primarily a baseball writer. Right, 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 right yeah. Um, but uh, I think this was from the 1990s uh, Roger Kahn wrote this biography of Dempsey, uh, it's called, uh, A Flame of Pure Fire, um, and I, I love this book, and in a way, uh, this book kind of was my guideline to write, uh, the Hagler Hearns book, um, because Roger Kahn does take you back to the 1920s, uh, to write about Dempsey, um, and he kind of, uh, Puts it all on display: the time, um, the the atmosphere of the twenties, what boxing meant in the twenties, and what Dempsey right. meant. Um, so this is one of my favorites. Uh, it's, it's I know hard, it's hard
1: to pick one. <laughs>
0: hard, hard, hard to pick one, but th- this yeah. this is if I was going to recommend one, I'd, I'd say this one. And uh, um, I also. Uh, Hugh Hugh McIlvaney's collection of uh, boxing stories. It's been published under a couple of different names. Hang on. Um, But uh, this one was, it was covered. It was called uh, the hardest game. Uh, And Hugh McIlvaney was um, a uh, writer from the United Kingdom. and uh, he he wrote for the Guardian and the Observer. He wrote, wrote for, sometimes for Sports Illustrated, um, oh, yeah. the, the 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 Sunday Times. Um, he he covered boxing in the sixties, the seventies, the eighties, the nineties. Uh, so so this one has a lot of history in it. And and he's also a beautiful writer, um, very poetic, as as uh, they are in the United Kingdom. I don't know why that is. <laughs> um they're they're not afraid of the language uh as we are in america we don't want to sound too smart you know what I right right yeah but uh uh so those are two books that i like quite a bit
1: all right i'll have to check them out sure well thanks again don appreciate you coming on
0: absolutely my pleasure and tell tell people that uh, they can buy my book on amazon and uh it's also being carried in some stores uh Put your mask mask on and, and go out to a store and you can buy it.